Hey, good morning once again. Uh, before we dive in, I feel a need to just speak briefly to, uh, to my fellow dads who are in the room. Uh, later on today, probably in just maybe, maybe an hour and a half or so, you might sit down for, for an important family lunch or later on today for a family dinner. And you're going to have an opportunity at that moment to lay hold of the calling that you share with your wife to be a spiritual leader in your home. And I want to encourage you to take hold of that opportunity. There's a very simple thing that you can do. If you already are not in the habit of doing this, start it today and, and lead a prayer at that dinner table with your family. It's much easier than you think. It could be something as simple as this. So you say these words, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this food, and we thank you that Christ is risen, that we are forgiven, and that death is defeated. Amen. Let's eat ham. <laughs> it, I mean, it really is that simple. Now, you, you, in case that your family is, is taken aback by your, by your spirituality and your eloquence, because they're not used to it, you may also want to have some dad jokes at the ready. Just to, uh, just to counterbalance with your hyper-spirituality that you're going to put on a display. And so I'm here to help you with that as well. So you might want to take these down. Uh, you might want to take notes here because this is, this is solid gold, my friends. All right? So, so here, here's dad joke number one. How did the soggy Easter bunny dry himself? With a hair dryer. <laughs> you're not going to get this anywhere else. Okay, folks? <laughs> Next one is this. What, what did Easter bunny and James Harden have in common? They're both famous for stuff in baskets. That's an easy one, guys. <laughs> and lastly, what happened when the, when the Easter bunny caught his head in the fan? It took ears off his life. <laughs> you are welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. I'm here for you, dads. Here for you. <laughs> yep, that's how we start. <laughs> So you probably noticed a theme in our celebration so far this morning. The theme is see and believe. And, and here's an obvious statement to you, but apart from you perceiving the person and the work of Jesus and, and really kind of grasping who he is and what he's done for you and your family, all of this stuff that we're doing this morning, you know, the, the Easter dresses and the pink ties and the bunny suits and the eggs and all of that stuff, Apart from you actually perceiving the person and the work of Jesus, all of this really is kind of foolish if you think about it. A apart from you perceiving who Jesus is and what he's done for you, seeing that and, and believing that it means something substantial for you and for your family and for your home, this really is a silly way to spend a beautiful Sunday morning. And that's why it's my sincere hope that you and your family, you would leave here later today with hearts full of faith, that you would see and believe, that you would leave this place with hearts full of faith in who Jesus is and what he's done for you and walk out of this place more hopeful and more joyful than you entered in. And there's no better person uh, to help us along in that journey than Thomas. Yes, that Thomas, the one we call Doubting Thomas, the one who, who scandalously demanded that he would not believe unless he saw Jesus with his own two eyes and was able to kind of put his hands and his fingers into the wounds from Jesus' death on the cross. Thomas, I think, gets a bad rap. He's not a disciple that we should disdain as if we're somehow better than him. No, I, I think Thomas is in some ways the poster boy for Easter faith. And his is a journey that each one of us should aim to take. And so with the short time that I have with you this morning, what I want to do is, is look at what we learn about faith in Jesus on Easter from Thomas. 
and apply it to ourselves so that we might see and believe. And the first thing we learn from Thomas about Easter faith is this, that Easter faith at its core, at its most basic level, comes down to believing the witness, the accounts of the apostles. A week earlier, Thomas had missed a very important party. Jesus had risen from the dead, and then he appeared to all of the other disciples, and for some reason, Thomas was not there. But at this party that Thomas missed out on, Jesus did something important. He appointed the disciples to be apostles. They got a higher title and a new calling. He appointed them to be apostles, meaning he appeared to them and he he gave them a job. He said, you're going to go out into the world and tell the world that you've seen me resurrected, and then you're going to preach forgiveness in my name and new life in my name. And in case you're wondering, that's what makes an apostle in the New Testament an apostle. Jesus personally appeared, and then he charged that person that he appeared to with going out and telling about the resurrection, the story of salvation, forgiveness, and life in his name. And Thomas missed out on that. Now, now, Jesus still wanted Thomas to be an apostle, but Thomas was going to have to wait for his turn for Jesus to appear. And while he waited, he waited eight days for his turn to show up. The other disciples were walking up to him, and it seems kind of rubbing it in his face, like, dude, you missed it. Oh, man, Jesus was there, flesh and blood standing right in front of us. He was alive. We saw the wounds. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And Thomas is like, no, 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 no. I refuse to believe any of it until I get my own personal hands-on meet and greet with Jesus. I refuse. Now, why would Thomas say it like that? Is it because he didn't want to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead? No. It's because he wanted to be an apostle like the other disciples. Now, the mistake Thomas makes, and this is why Jesus, when he does appear, kind of corrects Thomas, the mistake that that Thomas makes is that he refuses to even consider the idea that Jesus is risen until he gets his own personal Appearance. He refuses to believe the testimony of the other disciples who had seen him with their own two eyes. And in doing so, he kind of sets a bad example for the rest of us who will have no choice but to believe the testimony, the accounts of the apostles like Peter, James, John, and eventually Thomas who saw him risen with their own two eyes. That's why Jesus, when he does appear to Thomas, he mildly scolds him and he's like, you believe because you've gotten your own personal meet and greet and become an apostle? Blessed are those who don't get this, like you and me, and yet still believe. It comes down for all of us, unless you're one of the apostles, it comes down for all of us trusting the account of the apostles, that they saw him, that they, that they hugged him, that they knew him, that, that they encountered him, resurrected, and that they were sent by him out into the world to share this good news that 2,000 years later we are still celebrating. Easter at its core, Easter faith at its most basic level, is doing what Thomas initially was unwilling to do, which is believing the accounting, the testimony of the apostles. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn from Thomas is that Easter faith means dropping, letting go of your ifs and your whens when it comes to God. Here's what I mean by that. Thomas famously put some preconditions on his willingness to believe that Jesus was risen. Uh, at, at the outset of that encounter that we read in John chapter 20, um, Thomas has some ifs and whens. I'll only believe if, I'll only believe when. And what he's doing is he's putting preconditions on Jesus. 
Now, the interesting thing is, is when you read the account, once Jesus resurrected finally shows up, notice what doesn't happen. Thomas never has to touch the wounds of Jesus. Jesus offers, but John doesn't account for it. He doesn't record it. Why? Because once the resurrected Jesus showed up in front of Thomas's eyes, he realized how foolish all of his preconditions were. Because when Jesus resurrected stands in front of you, when you see him, when you see him, you realize, oh my goodness, <laughs> he really is God. And if he is God, then, then he doesn't owe me anything. In fact, I owe him everything. If he's God, he doesn't owe me anything. I owe him everything. You know, some of us, we start our spiritual journey in a very similar place. We, we have a whole bunch of preconditions. We have a whole bunch of ifs and whens when it comes to God. We, we, we say things whether we know it or not, kind of like this. Uh, God, I'll, I'll make you a priority in my life if my boyfriend finally gets his act together and proposes to me, and then I'll believe that you're real. Or when my son or daughter gets their act together and they get their own job and their own place and their own money and their own Netflix password, then, then I will believe that you are who you say you are, Jesus. Or, or if, if I get through grad school and I get the job that I want, if that happens, then I'll have like the space in my heart and my mind and my head to prioritize things correctly, Lord, and I'll, I'll make a big deal out of you then. But that's not Easter faith. If that's the game that you're trying to run on God, what you need to realize is that that's not actually faith in God at all. What your faith is in is in that relationship or in that degree or in that kid who's in your care. And that is not Easter faith. What, what, what needs to happen for you and for me is that our preconditions, our ifs and whens, they need to be dropped. And what that means is we, we see, we perceive the resurrected Jesus through the testimony of others. We see Jesus and we realize that, that Jesus is God, which means that he's not beholden to us in any way, shape, or form. He's holy and good and awesome and he doesn't owe us anything. But we also perceive that God is Jesus, the kind one, the compassionate one, the loving one, which means we can trust him with all of those other unfinished things. Easter faith means letting go of your ifs and your whens. The third thing that we learn from Thomas is that Easter faith means confessing that Jesus Christ is not just a God or the God, but that he is your God. So, so Thomas drops all of his preconditions. And when he does, he utters what is arguably the most beautiful confession of faith that we see in the scriptures. He says, my Lord and my God. Easter faith means confessing Christ not just as a God or the God, but as your God. Believing that, that his death means that your past is forgiven. That his rise from the grave means that your future is secure and that he is Lord and leader, not of just everybody else's life today, but of your life today. Uh, not too long ago, I watched this really great documentary about Mr. Rogers. Maybe you've seen it called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Have you seen it? It's fantastic. I, I can't recommend it enough. It's just tremendous. Uh, although I recommend that if you want to maintain your dignity, that you watch it in private and not on an airplane like me. I, I cried so hard that the flight attendant had to come and do like a wellness check in row 27 to make sure that I was okay. 
I mean, it's, it's really, really powerful. But in reflecting on that documentary, it, it, it made me realize that, that that's how many people view Jesus. They view Jesus as a good man, a great teacher, a fine moral example. They view Jesus as someone whose, whose life should be emulated, whose teaching, though simple, is profound and, and should be held on to. But that's really it. And, and perhaps that's where, where you are today. But let me tell you, if, if, if you think that Jesus is, is merely a great teacher or a fine moral example, then, then you are at odds not only with Thomas, who eventually confessed my Lord and my God, and with me, who confesses the same, and with the, the history and the teaching of the church over the last few thousand of years that says the same thing, you are actually at odds with Jesus himself. Like, if you read the accounting of Jesus' life, just take, for example, his entrance into Jerusalem five days before he's killed on the cross. Jesus enters into Jerusalem demanding that he be seen as the Savior King of the world. He is demanding that the leaders and the people in charge understand that he is far more than a teacher. He's far more than a moral example. He is asserting divine authority, and he draws a line in the sand with his life, and so they take his life. One commentator puts it like this. When you look at the way Jesus lived and the things that he said, for sure, Jesus was saying to the world this. He was saying, you can crown me or you can kill me, but there's no in-between for me. Jesus insisted on being seen as either God in flesh or a total fraud. Yet his rise from the grave 2,000 years ago makes seeing him as a fraud seem kind of foolish. So what do you say he is? Do you think he is God in flesh to you? Or is he a total fraud? And if you choose the latter, then what do you say to days like today where where the reverberations of something that happened 2,000 years ago are still being felt in the lives of billions of people who are gathered in this moment right now like this? What do you say to that? Look, if you're here as a skeptic, I get it. This is is, a hard thing to to wrap our hearts and our minds around. You might say, look, Matt, you talk about putting faith in the account of the apostles. I can't put that much faith in the words of other people. To which I say, of course you can. You do all the time. You put your faith in the seeing and in the testimony of other people all the time. That that podcast that you're into that you won't stop talking about, it's just words of other people. That weather report that you cling to every single morning before you hit the road on I-10, it's just the words of other people. Those marriage vows that mean the world to you, and they should, just the words of another person. The Netflix documentary that you keep watching over and over and over again, you weren't there, it's just the words of another person. The diagnosis you received, the peer-reviewed scientific study that you had to read for work, The directions on how to bake a cake to take to grandma's later. The directions for how to update your iPhone. It's all just words from other witnesses that you choose to believe. So much of life is faith in the words and the witnesses of others. We see, we see through the eyes of other people all the time. And Easter faith is no different. It is seeing through the eyes of the apostles who were there. Likewise, you might think, man, I I can't have faith in Jesus. You, you, you have faith in so many things, my friends. You have profound faith. You have deep faith. You have strong faith. Mostly in yourself. 
Coming to faith in Jesus is not conjuring up a belief in Jesus that you don't already have. It's about taking a faith that you do have that is latched like a dog to a bone on something else and allowing it to be put on him. The faith that you have in your abilities, in your career, in your accomplishments, in your politics, in your worldview, whatever it is, that deep, strong faith that you have in that thing following the leading and the pull and the call of God, which is why he brought you here, to not conjure up something new, but to transfer something that you already have and let it latch on to Jesus. Because that other thing, if you make it the ultimate thing, it will show you that it's a faulty thing because it will fail you. But Jesus, who has lived, died, and risen again, he won't. That's what we're talking about. One more thing about Thomas. One, one thing that most people don't know about him is the man that he became after this moment. After this moment where he, he saw Jesus and he said, my Lord and my God, and he dropped all of his ifs and whens, all of his preconditions, and he just confessed that Jesus was Lord and God, and, and Thomas became an apostle, sent out to preach, and sent out to tell the story. Thomas was changed. He was transformed. He was forever different. History tells us that Thomas went out and he, he began to preach the gospel to talk about the resurrection of Jesus in what we now know as India. And he started the Christian church there. And as a result of that, millions and millions of people came to faith. And, and he, he lived and he served there so passionately and so faithfully that when, when people came to him and asked him to recant his message of Jesus rising from the dead, he said, I can't recant. And ultimately, he was persecuted and martyred. He was killed with a spear through each of his legs and each of his arms after faithfully telling the story of Jesus for 39 years. He died in 72 AD. Don't call him a doubter. Every single person who saw Jesus with their own two eyes, they willingly suffered persecution rather than say that they didn't see it. And, and the vast majority of disciples, like, like Thomas, Peter, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, uh, Paul, and others, they were willingly martyred for refusing to deny what they saw. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, it, it, it transforms people. It, it, turned, it turned Thomas into a witness. It turned Peter into a leader. It turned Paul into a preacher. That's what it does. It, it, it changes people. When you see and perceive and believe the resurrection of Jesus, it anticipates a transformation. And that transformation in the lives of others is a blueprint for what God is going to do in you. Do you want to be transformed? Do you want to be changed? Because belief in the resurrected Jesus Christ, it does that. Now, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen perfectly. It happens slowly over the course of time and never really completes itself. But it does happen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, your belief in that, it makes, it makes doubting people bold. It makes, it makes sad people hopeful. It makes weak people strong. It makes lazy people passionate. It transforms people. Do you want to be transformed. I know you do. 
But that's not even all of it. The greatest transformation is the one that's yet to come because what Jesus says about him is not only that through faith in him we get transformed today, he says that there's this ultimate transformation coming tomorrow, like in the very end when he returns. He promises that he's coming back and the Easter morning that happened to him 2,000 years ago happens to all of us. I know it's crazy for us to wrap our minds around, but it's the promise you see over and over and over and over in the scriptures that one day Jesus is coming and his resurrection from the dead will be just the first fruits of a larger crop of all of us who will rise from the dead and we will enjoy eternity in flesh and blood and bone forever with him. That's the transformation we anticipate as well. Do you want to be transformed? I know you do. Easter faith means believing the accounts of the apostles. It means dropping your preconditions. It means confessing Jesus Christ as yours. It means anticipating a transformation, a work that God is going to do in you as you have faith holding on to the person and the work of Jesus. That's what it means. My son Jack is four years old. He's a student here at St. Mark in the preschool. And one day, he and the rest of his classmates, they were being led on a field trip around the building. And their teacher was taking them around the building to the various rooms, and they were talking about all the things that go on in that building. So she took them to the cafeteria, and she said, kids, what happens in here? And the kids said, this is where the big kids eat. Correct. She took them to the library. She said, kids, what happens in here? And they said, this is where we read books. Correct. They came into the sanctuary. Kids, what happens here? This is where we learn about Jesus. Correct. And then they went into the offices where our staff team is. They stopped right in front of my door. And she asked Jack, she said, Jack, this is where your daddy works. Now we need to be quiet. Do you know what happens in here? Why do we need to be quiet? And Jack, without missing a beat, he looked at his teacher and his friends and he said, because my daddy is sleeping. (laughs) I would just like to set the record straight that I do not fall asleep in my office. I, I fall asleep on the couch watching Bravo with my wife like a real man. That's why I fall asleep. Here's why I share that. Some of you are asleep. Not physically, but but spiritually, when it comes to, like, the things of God. You're you're just going through life, and you're thinking, well, that doesn't really matter much to me, or it doesn't make much sense to me, or I'll figure it out later. Meanwhile, you are missing out, and you, you might miss completely. My sincere hope for you is that you would perceive, that you would see that that Jesus Christ is the forgiver, the leader, the savior of your life. That you might see that and that you might believe that. And you might believe that there is transformation and newness that is possible for you. That you might see and perceive and believe that. That, that That you might see that that all is forgiven, that death, though difficult, is inconsequential, and that your ultimate future is completely secure, and that right now, if all that's true, you are free. You are free. You are 100% free to live a life of love and gratitude and joy and service. No matter who you are or where you've come from or what you deal with, you are free, that you would see that. Trust the witness of those who saw and who were sent to you. Let go of your ifs and whens and believe today. 
Confess that Jesus is not just a God or the God, but he is yours, mine. And believe that God is making you new. See and believe. Amen.